black power. Sometimes it's talked about as a state of mind. Sometimes as a shift in power and wealth. Sometimes as something for the soul. But when you're torn away from your home, reclaiming your power may come from something much more tangible. I'm Jay, and you're listening to Black History Year. Alabama. Tim Mayer was arrogant, greedy, and a failed businessman. He was also a gambling man, and despite the ban on importing enslaved Africans 50 years prior, he wagered. Inside two years, I myself can bring a ship full of niggers right into Mobile Bay under the officers' noses. Mayer made good on his bet to smuggle and enslave 100 of our ancestors from present Bay Benin to Alabama. But this isn't a story about him or his sadistic bet. This is a story about land. Oluwele Kosola stumbled off the Clotilda slave ship in 1860 and onto the muddy soil of Mobile, Alabama. The mud may have been warm between his toes, but all he felt was the coldness of loss. It had been months since he'd seen Benin, his West African home, and the memory of it made him weep. His capture had been swift and brutal. The journey across the Atlantic was nothing short of repulsive. For five years, he endured back-breaking labor as the property of Maher until the vile practice of enslaving black bodies ended. Well, on paper. Kosola was now called Cujo Lewis. He had a wife and children, and none of them had ever seen the beauty of his country. Over the years and the pain and the struggle, Lewis and his fellow captives from the Clotilda still longed to return to their homeland. But the price for passage back to Africa was too high, and they had to get real. America was their new home. This acceptance inspired action. Distraught yet determined, they pooled their money and purchased land from their former owner to create another Africa right on Alabama soil. There, with their hearts and minds turned toward Benin, they built a church, schools, stores. They empowered themselves by maintaining their oral traditions and cherished culture, teaching it all to their children. For years on, the people of Africatown challenged the norms of the day to vote, to fight for reparations, and to sue the largest manufacturers for injuries to themselves and their children. Kujo Lewis and Africatown should make you wonder, does their story provide a roadmap to true black empowerment? So in 1927, Zora Neale Hurston interviewed Kujo Kazula. Kujo was the last living survivor of the Clotilda and that community that built Africatown. Years later... Dr. Natalie Robertson has incorporated Hurston's interviews plus an incredible diversity of oral histories and African perspectives and so much more in her book, The Slave Ship, Katilda, and the Making of Africatown. And I'm grateful to have Dr. Robertson as our guest today on Black History Year. Dr. Robertson, what does Black liberation look like to you? 
Well, Black liberation to me right now always looks like education, always looks like reading, researching, being informed, particularly about one's history first and about other things second. Because, of course, you don't understand one's history in a vacuum. Secondly, I would say Black liberation looks like community building, which is what the founders of Africatown, those 30 members of that cargo of 110, engaged in when they had no other options, when they could not support themselves to return to Africa. They built Africa in America. And to some extent, that is the story of Black liberation, not just for those members of the Clotilda, but for Black people all over the planet. Let's jump into that story some about the Clotilda. Can you just walk us through how Africatown came to be? Well, the Clotilda case developed in 1860, right on the eve of the Civil War, when the anti-slavery movement was really at its height, when there was a struggle, really, between slave owners and the federal government over the issue of slavery. Of course, the federal government wanted to end slavery, at least end smuggling at sea, but had been unable to do so effectively, not even after the implementation of the Piracy Act of 1820 was the government able to effectively curb or end the smuggling of Africans into the Americas. And what emerged from this struggle between pro-slavery individuals and the federal government was this fight over the issue of slavery. And this case really emerged out of that fight when an individual by the name of Timothy Maya, who moved from Maine to Mobile to engage in shipbuilding, plantation owning, steamboat building and operating, decided that he would wager a bet aboard one of his steamboats that he could smuggle a ship full of Africans into the country under the nose of the federal government and get away with it. He hired a captain. He purchased a ship called the Clotilda and Captain Foster commanded the Clotilda to West Africa to pursue a cargo of Africans, Cujo being among the members of that particular cargo. Once they arrived in Alabama on July 9, 1860, they then pulled the Clotilda up 
the Alabama River to the John Dabney Plantation, where the Africans were disembarked, then dispersed to various people who had pre-purchased them. Thirty members of that cargo, however, were carried back to Timothy Mayer's plantation in Mobile, Alabama, uh, which is where those Africans founded Africatown. After they were uh, not able to return to Africa, they decided that they would make the best of that ordeal by building their own community in Mobile. And Africatown remains extant. Some of the descendants of Cujo and others live there. And that community is located roughly three miles north of the Mobile Business District. How did this town look? What was the institutions and the structure of it? For the most part, it was a self-contained community because, of course, the Clotilde Africans represented an oddity, you know, on the eve of the Civil War, because you have this group of African peoples who are still speaking Yoruba, who are still speaking Fang and other West African languages, when most of the Black people living on the periphery of Africatown have been acculturated and are speaking English. Because this case happened so late in the history of the slave trade, they were smuggled in and basically left to fend for themselves. And they remained this odd exhibit, this exhibit of very odd individuals who were still very African in a community of acculturated Black people. So there was a bit of tension between themselves, of course, and the acculturated Blacks, right? For all of the reasons that we can imagine. But um, when they could not purchase their way back to Africa, they resolved that they would build their own community. So they approached Timothy Mayo for land. He then denied them the land because his response to them was, your property, you are my property, asking me for property? Absolutely not. So ultimately, after slavery and after being employed, really, in Timothy Mayer's sawmills and making a very, very small wage, they were able to save their money and purchase some small plots of land from Timothy Mayer. And this was the making of Africa Town, which remains a very self-contained, very insular community because they pretty much bonded and remained to themselves because they knew each other better, actually, than they knew the Black people and certainly the white people around them. And they were able to sustain it that way because they not only built their own houses, but they also planted their own food. They were able to feed themselves. They also, from those crops, developed their own herbal medicines. Mm. 
So in that regard, the knowledge that they brought with them was very valuable and it sustained them. But what also sustained Africatown was their own age grade system of governance that they brought with them and implemented. And another way of explaining this would be elder governance, whereby the elders rule Mm. and the elders rule the community by virtue of their wisdom. And that is the kind or system of governance that Cujo and Charlie and Gumpa and Poli maintained in Africatown. And this is in part why Africatown was so orderly and why it was, in fact, so successful. And this is why Africatown is still extant. Mm. So all of these things are coming in the bellies of slave ships. And the Africans were able to draw on their belief systems, their cosmologies, their worldviews, their religions, their deities, their agricultural practices, their herbal medicine, their folk traditions, their carving skills, their tanning skills to produce not just this Africa town, but many Africa towns wherever Black people are in diaspora. So many folks have this view of history that the South and North were drastically different as far as people's mentality towards slavery and Black folks. But did he have these intentions coming down? Do you know anything about him? Did he come down here for this type of activity or just happen to just be a bet? You know, typically when people um, relocate to another area, they do assess and consider whether or not they will be able to sustain and maintain their way of life. So for him, coming from Maine, where there was a great deal of shipbuilding going on, you know, he would naturally be concerned with whether or not he would be able to engage in shipbuilding when he reached Mobile. So you know, while you don't have major plantations in the New England states, what you have is the shipbuilders building the slave ships for the trade, producing the rum for the trade, and closely aligned with that would be the whaling industry as well, because the whaling industry depended heavily upon African men um, that were acquired mainly in the Cape Verde Islands, but in the Cape Verde Islands by way of um, the mainland of Africa. So it's truly a system as a slave economy, like it wasn't just in the South in a vacuum. Both regions benefited from this, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And in fact, one of your major traders, shipbuilders and traders name was James Brown. <clears throat> James Brown was a resident of Rhode Island. He built uh, slave ships. He also had like a vertical business model in which he built the ships and he also distilled rum, which was one of the major trade items that they used to trade for Africans in Africa. And he made so much money that he decided to donate some of that 
money to Providence College. And of course, you know that many colleges get their start with endowment money, endowments of money or land or uh, a combination thereof. And Providence College, in appreciation of his generous gift, changed its name to Brown University. Hmm. Wow. Brown University, the prestigious Ivy League University, began its history with slave trader money. As you're pointing out, you didn't have to directly own enslaved Black people in order to benefit from the system of slavery in a number of ways. Absolutely, you did not. And I'd like to remind those people who say that, that old money makes new money. Mm. You know, if you're a member of a wealthy family, for example, you might want to, you know, honestly assess where that money came from. The money from the slave trade laid the foundation for the industrial age. Right. Whose money laid the foundation for the information age. Whose money laid the foundation for the digital age. Right. You know, a lot of wealthy families have inherited wealth and you know, trust and properties from parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grands that, quite frankly, go all the way back to the period of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. So while you may not have enslaved anyone directly, you are benefiting in some cases, if you're honest about it, from the money that your family acquired on the backs of enslaved people. Absolutely. So let's take it back to the Clotilda. We have this ship arrives on the shores of Benin, Polibos, the Dahomey at the time. And I know in Zora Neale Hurston's book, Kujo Lewis describes the trauma of just that experience of being ripped from Africa. I know that the Dahomey were huge in the slave trading game, but I'd like to understand, did they know what they were getting folks into? Was the system the same? Did they have a different outlook on what slavery meant? Or was it as simple as how people want us to believe Africans sold their own people into slavery? What are the nuances there? Well, let's begin with this pernicious argument that's circulating these days, which says that if Africans hadn't sold other Africans, the slave trade would not have occurred. And in arguing, such individuals are really trying to lay the blame for the slave trade squarely on the shoulders of the African peoples. And I would answer this question this way. First of all, the slave trade was buyer-driven, not seller-driven. It was buyer-driven because the Europeans, by leaving Europe, coming to the Americas, committing wholesale slaughter against indigenous people, divesting them of their land, possessing that land, then determining they wanted to plant 
sugarcane and tobacco and rice, not simply for personal consumption, but for the global market, then creating a need for mass labor in order to achieve those ends. They were the ones who then created the demand for labor and called at the ports of Africa for that labor. So the transatlantic slave trade was buyer-driven, not seller-driven. The next point I would make is that not all Africans were sold slaves, but some Africans certainly did. Those Africans who were engaged in the slave trade as sellers were by and large warrior groups, warrior groups that were already equipped to engage in warfare as a regular uh, course of action so that when the slave trade comes into existence, that gives them another avenue of disposing of their enemies. Mm. The Fong people of Dahomey were one of those warrior groups that engaged in a protracted war with their Yoruba neighbors. And the Fong warriors of Dahomey sold more than 2 million Africans into the transatlantic slave trade, including the members of the Clotilde Cargo. And that is why you find, to some extent, some Fong members in that cargo. And then you have a considerable Yoruba contingency in that cargo as well. I would also say, for those individuals who want to lay the blame for the slave trade at the feet of the African peoples, that the Europeans remain heavily engaged in the trade on both sides of the Atlantic. They opened up the plantations in the Americas and they built slave castles along the West African coast, mm. um, as well as on the East African coast, and perhaps there is a castle or two on the South African coast where they would store cargo, uh, trade items, and where they would engage in administrative affairs, like counting the money and other things that they exchanged for the Africans. So that's important to remember. It's also important to remember that the Dutch supplied the guns for the slave trade. And I would say generally, the Dutch and others instigated wars between Africans because quite frankly, wars and warfare generated captives for the trade. And lastly, I would say regarding you know, this pernicious argument about who has the blame for the slave trade, I have to say that the Africans, they were in fact on the losing end of this trade. Because what happened initially is that they ended up trading their best and brightest because the prime number one Negro, and that is the description that Europeans use, uh, not just European slave traders, but Americans slave traders, right? They used that phrase, the prime number one Negro. And for them, 
the prime number one Negro is defined as black and male and averaging about 19 years of age. And I have discovered a disturbing parallel between the identity and the age of the target for the slave trade being Black and male and about 19, and the identity and the age and the target for the prison system Mm. also being Black and male and 19. I mean, we could talk all day, really, about the transition from slavery to, you know, the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration, because one is the child of the other, really. So Africans were on the losing end of the deal. They traded their best and their brightest for inferior rum and cheap tobacco and trinkets. And lastly, I would say that for Europeans and American slave buyers who were calling at the African ports, they would go to Africa and pay, you know, a paltry $50 for an African, but bring that African back to the United States and sell that African for anywhere from $350 on up. Mm. So now if you multiply 350 times a cargo of, I don't know, 500 times perhaps 10 cargoes that you might make in a year, times 200 years, which is the period of time that the slave trade lasted in British North America. Well, if you do the math, you can tell who made the money. If you sell an African, you make money once. But if you own an African, you own the African You own everything the African produces. You own the African's inventions. You own the African's children Mm. after a certain time in British North America. Then you make money for life. And then when your life is over, you will your Negroes to your children. And the process starts all over again. Well. Thank you for breaking that down. The age comparison you made was very powerful to me. I had never heard that fact before between the prime Negro, 19 and male, as far as slavery and today. We see how that plays out. It's like they wanted to use us for very specific labor needs. They had a need for us at one point. And now the correlation between mass incarceration, they uh, want to dispose of us since we're not really as of much use to them in their eyes. Yes, not much use in terms of plantation labor now, but of course, still of use. Oh, right. Prison labor. But a different kind of use. Talking about prison labor generally. Yeah. Some prison farms still here in Virginia where individuals are actually engaged in agriculture. Inmates Mm. are engaged in agriculture. In other places, inmates are building furniture, which is being sold for the benefit of the owners of the prisons. Mm. So let's just say this, that when slavery ended in 1865, then the prison system began to do what plantations once did, which was to contain 
large numbers of black people for the sake of exploiting their labor. Mm. And nothing has changed in that regard, except to say that mass incarceration also has some other social engineering aspects, right? Because it's not just about labor, but if we take the youngest and the brightest away from their communities, then we actually divest their communities of their future. And it weakens the community overall, particularly when this has been going on for generations, such that there are some young people now who might see going to prison as a rite of passage. Which, because they're so young, we don't blame them for that. It's just a very disturbing uh, fact of life for certain individuals who have seen, you know, their fathers and their brothers and their uncles go to prison such that they don't have an alternative perspective and they may view it as normal. This becomes the norm and where it becomes the norm, it also becomes a very dangerous trap. We're going to pause for a second more in a minute. With so many things pulling on your time, thanks for spending some of it with Black History Year. We're a community of hundreds of thousands of folks who believe knowing our history makes all of us stronger. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take this into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. So they ripped us from communities in Africa and put us over here to do their dirty work. And the same thing's happening today with the prison industrial complex as far as being ripped from our communities and made to do their dirty work and it being normalized, same way slavery um, at a certain point was normalized. After you're born into slavery, often you can see how it'd be normalized. But let's talk about community for a minute. I'm interested in after these folks who were taken and brought over on the Clotilda got here, they endured about three, five years of formal enslavement. Then they started building community, right? Yes, indeed. They started building the community when they determined that they didn't have any options. Mm. And the biggest option that they were interested in was, of course, returning to Africa. They could not explain their whole ordeal. That was the case for many Africans who couldn't explain why it was that they were captured under those circumstances, torn away from their families torn away from their villages, from their cities, you know, from their homelands, from everything um, that was familiar to them, then thrown into the company of these Europeans who looked drastically different from them, transported against their will, and then forced into labor situations ultimately for the duration of their lives and for the duration of the lives of their children. They had no other explanation for that. Mm. I have to say that the type of servitude in Africa was 
totally different from European slavery. European slavery is unlike any other form of slavery in the annals of human history, all right? Unlike anything that humans have ever witnessed because of the way in which enslavement not only divested Black people of their freedom, but then denied them an opportunity to develop and grow and prosper and did that generationally for 200 years by law, particularly from 1662 coming forward, by law, then by segregation and by discrimination. No humans have ever experienced anything like that. So the Clotilde Africans then, when they had no other way of returning to Africa, they resolved that they would build their own Africa town in Alabama. And that's exactly what they did. So they drew on their African knowledge, their African technical skills, their African agricultural skills to not only build their own community with their own hands, but they sustained it based upon their African forms of governance, their African forms of agriculture, and their communal style of living, whereby they shared resources with one another. Let's talk about what they brought with them. You mentioned the different skills and understandings of the world. I'd like to start with understanding how they formed their society around these communal ideals. Because from what I understand, they didn't form the society based on American ideals. Is that correct? That is correct. And, and scholars used to argue that the slave trade was so harsh that it really um, robbed the Africans of all of their uh, folk traditions and folk knowledge and, you know, folk ways. But we now know that that's not true. I, for one, have never believed that. In fact, I argue the opposite, which is that the slave trade was so harsh and unforgiving that it actually forced the Africans to rely on what they knew. And it's important for people to understand that the Africans were coming to the Americas equipped with a lot of knowledge, technical skills, artistic skills. And in fact, this is why the slave traders preferred them over other people anyway. Because when you look at the dynamics of the slave trade, let's take just the economics of the slave trade. It would have been more feasible for the Europeans to enslave their own people. Since the early slave ships were leaving Europe, I mean, quite frankly, why didn't you just enslave a lot of European peoples, bring them here and force them to work? Now, they did that to some extent. 
under indentured servitude, but that was servitude. That was not enslavement in the way that African peoples were enslaved. But according to race-based enslavement, as it was designed and implemented in British North America and elsewhere, you were slaves for life. And after a certain time, your children were born slaves. But the short answer to the question is, they didn't enslave the Europeans on the same order as they did the Africans because the Europeans did not possess the knowledge and the skills that the Africans possess. Mm. You know, when most people talk about slavery, they talk about the free labor that the Africans did. Certainly, that is a huge factor in the whole discussion. But what is even more significant is the fact that what made African peoples attractive for the purposes of plantation labor is the fact that they came here equipped with agricultural knowledge. So parts of Carolina, down into probably the northern region of Georgia, on the eastern coast, right? And you have the Carolina-Georgia Low Country called the Low Country because the elevation, there's really no elevation, it's low-lying, at sea level, very well hydrated, and conducive to planting rice. Well, in this area, the Chesapeake and down into the Carolinas and Georgia, you have largely British planters and Scottish planters. Well, British planters and Scottish planters have no knowledge of how to plant rice. Mm. Because rice does not grow in Scotland or England. So where do they get that knowledge? They get that knowledge from Africans. And Africans coming from largely, I would say, Senegal on down to Liberia, that region of the West African coast is known as the Grain Coast. Not just because they're engaged in agriculture, they're engaged in agriculture all over the continent. But in that region, you can find rice producing Africans. Mm. So then the British and the Scottish planters down in the Carolinas, certainly in the Sea Island regions, would request Africans from the grain coast. Now, before they started planting rice, they were planting indigo. Where does indigo grow in England or Scotland? Nowhere. Mm. You know, where do they get that knowledge? They got that from Africans as well. You will find Africans in Nigeria, some Igbo Africans, to some extent some Yoruba Africans, I suppose, planting indigo. And this is why if you go to the Carolinas, you know, people will talk about Igbo landing. Well, what they're referencing is the fact that they were importing Igbo-speaking Africans all over that region mm. because they possessed the knowledge of how to plant indigo. Then your Africans from Senegal, um, Liberia, and, you know, other areas brought rice producing knowledge and skills to that region. This is precisely why Black people 
living in the Carolinas, particularly the Sea Islands and parts of Georgia, could very easily trace their origins back to the Wolof or the Serera or some other groups coming from the Grain Coast because they had specific preferences for those Africans to do that work and because Black people have remained in that region for generations by and large, right? And that also speaks to the diversity of Black people in this country. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are Black people that we could go and, you know, attempt to converse with and we couldn't understand a word they may be saying simply because their language is still infused with African vocabulary, syntax, uh, ideas, and uh, inflections and, you know, pronunciations and so on and so forth. So uh, we are very diverse in this country. I mean, you have some Africans up in parts of Massachusetts who are descendants of those Black men from the Cape Verde Islands who were engaged in whaling, who were forced into labor on the whaling ships and who subsequently settled in parts of Massachusetts. That's a very diverse Black community Mm. as well. So I say all of that to say that Africans did not come here bereft of talent, bereft of skills, bereft of knowledge. In fact, that is why the planters preferred African peoples in the first place because of that knowledge that got exploited for capital gain. When you go down to Charleston, on down into Florida, on around into Alabama, and all into Texas, certainly Louisiana, and you look at that intricate wrought iron decorative decor that graces some of the antebellum houses in those areas, that was forged by Black men who brought those iron smelting seals to the Americas. This is super important because it's like the narrative that's been presented to me, I know, and I'm sure most other folks, is that white folks just went over and got any African they could find as long as they were strong or they could, you know, think they could breed them. But intelligence didn't seem to be a factor the way it was taught to me. And so it was amazing when I when I learned about the fact that they were intentionally targeting different areas, different regions for to get different skill sets that they didn't possess at all themselves. And that's what built this country. Well, yes. And I would add to that by saying that your knowledge and the knowledge of many other people, white, black, and otherwise, is limited largely and and really focused on the labor aspects of slavery largely because they don't give enough attention to it in the textbooks. Mm. Your average K-12 textbook, certainly by the time you get to the 11th and 12th grade, has maybe about, what, 20 chapters in it, perhaps, but only one may be devoted to Black people. 
And even within that one chapter, that one chapter has a particular focus and the focus is slavery. The focus is the labor of slavery. And before you know it, you're talking about the civil rights movement. Right. You know, there's no discussion of the contributions that Black people made to plantations and to the building of America beyond labor. No attention given to the inventions that Black people contributed to American society. And after that very brief discussion of slavery, you jump into the civil rights movement, but to the extent to which you do that, you skip almost 100 years of Black history. Students have been grossly undereducated with regards to not just Black history, but the history and culture of people of color in general. And I would also say that that void actually contributes to racism and racial hatred in this country. Because of course, if you have such a void and the void is consistent and systemic and longstanding, then ultimately certain people come to believe that Black people don't matter within the history of the United States. And if you follow the logic, if Black people don't matter, then Black people are expendable. Coming in the bellies of slave ships to the Americas were super intelligent individuals who brought their knowledge base with them, who brought their cosmologies with them. You know, I have to remind people that Africa is the genesis of human development and civilization. We could have a whole nother conversation. But that's worth having a different, separate conversation whereby we could devote a couple of solid hours to the discussion of Africa as the genesis of human development and civilization. And I would give you the evidence of that. And we would start with the archaeological evidence, move into the environmental evidence, and also talk about the role of melanin, and then we would end with the discussion of the biblical evidence mm. to support that reality. This season, we're talking to Dr. Renuka Rashidi and Anthony Browder as well about some of that. We want to take it as far back as we can, because it seems that the, as you pointed out, the narrative for us is just slavery, civil rights, then Obama comes along. But this has been amazing. And I would like to get from you some key lessons or takeaways that our community today could take from the experience of those who built Africatown and the descendants of those who are still in Africatown. What are some lessons regarding land, power, you know, self-sufficiency in Black spaces? Like, What are some of the key lessons that you learned in your research that we should be um, looking to as we try to build stronger Black communities? That is a great question because I actually deal with that in chapter nine of the book. And in chapter nine, you know, we've come to a crossroads whereby we're going to have to decide as a people which way we're going to go. And ultimately, the two options that I discuss, and there are more, but I discuss two options. One is reparations. The other one is community building. 
Now, I don't ask people to choose between the two. I ask individuals to consider both. Reparations is a valid pursuit because after all, there are no people who have been aggrieved or wronged who say, I've been wronged, but I don't want anything. Black people should also not take that stance. There has to be some reckoning and some compensation even for that. And I go into a discussion about the levels of compensation because that compensation doesn't always have to come in the form of money, which might not even be the best compensation, you know, for what has happened to Black people in this country for generations. Because quite frankly, our growth has been stunted in this country. So reparations, in my opinion, is a valid pursuit. I go into a discussion about the different levels upon which you can pursue it. So I lay that out as a blueprint for people to consider. The other blueprint that I lay out is community building using Africatown as a model for community building. Understanding that the greatest aspect of the Black experience is not our victimization. That's important, of course. But the greater aspect of the Black experience in the Americas is the extent to which Black people drew on their knowledge and talent and technical skills to supersede their victimization and to carve out their own community from Africatown to Tulsa, the Greenwood Archer Pine section of Tulsa known as Black Wall Street, to Rosewood, to Auburn you know, Avenue, Atlanta, to Second Street, Richmond, to Durham, North Carolina. I mean, our history is replete with examples of community building. And I think we've reached a point in our history in this country when we have to go back to community building. And that leads me to a little bit of a discussion about Pharrell's and Jay-Z's collaboration on Entrepreneur. That is long overdue. There is a place for club music, but in my opinion, the time for clubbing is over. It's time to become an entrepreneur. It's time to create your own content. It's time to produce your own inventions, your own patents, your own copyrights, to own that which you produce because you are perfectly positioned to do that now in a way 
that our ancestors were not. But look what they did with as little that they had at that particular time. You now have social media at your disposal. You have a vast platform on which to build. And so in the digital age, there is no excuse, really, for being unproductive and disempowered in this country. But the focus has to shift. I am so thrilled with Pharrell's and Jay-Z's collaboration, Entrepreneur. I absolutely love it. It's time to become more focused and it's time to get on with the business of building and rebuilding our own communities from the inside. I love that. Dr. Robertson, thank you so, so much for uh, spending time with us today on Black History Year. So much information and wisdom um, for sure. So I really appreciate you and uh, definitely hope to have you back again to discuss everything you got. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. All right. So just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. You know, at Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. Special thanks to Detroit's Motor City Woman Studio and Andrea Daniel. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Escadar Getahoon, Leslie Taylor Grover, Abney Jones, Aquia Tay, Darren Wallace, and our producer, Sydney Smith. For Limina House, our producers are Jessica Rue France and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the podcast. Black History Year's executive producers are Julian Walker for Push Black and Michael L. Sesser for Limina House. I'm Jay for Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. Peace.